By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded. I'm your host for today, Shireen Mohammadi, coming to you from New York. This week, to mark International Workers' Day, we're going to talk about the credit risks related to the social contract and how a weakening in the contract is often associated with very real credit implications in the countries where it takes place. Now, we've seen a lot of social unrest so far this year, be it in the form of protests, riots, or labor strikes across both advanced and emerging markets, including places like France, Germany, Kenya, Peru, and Tunisia, among others. In Peru's case, we changed the outlook on the sovereign's rating to negative from stable earlier this year as a direct result of higher sociopolitical pressures. So to discuss these trends and the credit risks related to the social contract more broadly, I'm joined by my colleagues Elisa Parisi-Capone and David Rogovic, both from the Sovereign Risk team. Welcome, Elisa, David. Hello, Shirin. Hi, Shirin. Thanks for having me. Elisa, let's start with you. First, can you define for our listeners what we mean by the social contract? And how do we look at this when we look at different sovereigns? Because presumably not all countries or individuals within a society have the same preferences on the allocation of responsibilities. Yes, that's right. There's no uniform better or worse allocation of responsibilities within the social contract framework. In the simplest terms, the social contract between governments and citizens holds that either the economic framework allows citizens to generate the necessary income to access basic services on their own, or the government provides them through the welfare state, for instance. And when we say basic services here, we mean things like housing, healthcare, education services, and social security or pensions, for example. Okay, so the societal agreement between individuals and their government on who provides for basic services. And how do we measure this from a sovereign credit perspective? Are these measures considered when we sign sovereign ratings? One way to proxy the social contract is to look at the combination of economic income indicators and governance strength. So yes, these measures are already captured in our sovereign rating methodology. The combination of a sovereign's economic and governance strength are indicative of its economic resiliency. So in this sense, a persistent weakening of real income levels that reduces access to basic services for a significant part of the population or the persistent deterioration of public services quality can in turn fuel social discontent. We capture the income effect in economic strength, and we proxy public service quality in our assessment of a country's institutions and governance strength. And when looking at trends in economic and institutions and governance strength, which countries would appear to have lower capacity to prevent social discontent and any related credit implications? When we look at the distribution of countries, those that have seen a combined deterioration in income and governance strength indicators include a number of frontier and emerging markets, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, such as South Africa and Zambia, and Latin America, 
such as Brazil and Suriname, among others. So the credit strength of all these sovereigns has deteriorated over the past decade, reducing their capacity to prevent social risks from materializing or effectively respond to them. Brazil and South Africa are the largest economies in this group, and they have recorded the highest number of social unrest events since 2012, while also experiencing multiple sovereign rating downgrades. In the case of Brazil, for instance, increased political polarization has led to recurring social protests. Politically motivated social tensions are likely to persist and could escalate further if economic conditions remain weak, notwithstanding the large social safety net. In South Africa, in turn, weakening public service provision is reflected in recent rolling blackouts. So among those sovereigns with rising income levels but weakening governance, there are a number of middle-income uh, emerging market economies like Mexico and Turkey. Among frontier market economies, we assess uh, all those that with rising income levels but weakening governance as having highly negative or very highly negative exposure to social risk. These include names like Bosnia and Herzegovina, as well as Eswatini, Mozambique and Mali. In a number of high income and advanced economies, governance indicators have also declined. However, still high governance indicator levels and larger incomes generally point to response capacity to deal with unrest events and mitigating related credit risk in, in these cases. Now, turning to you, David, Elisa's just explained how a weakening in social contracts can be proxied by factors already captured in our sovereign ratings methodology, meaning by the time social unrest crystallizes, the sovereign credit profile will have already been weakening. But once social risk and unrest crystallizes, it can have even further credit implications. So how do episodes of social unrest affect sovereign ratings? That's a great question, Sharon. So when we look back at episodes of social unrest, we see that social unrest often coincides with other developments like economic stagnation or in response to political events, which can have negative credit implications. And there are three main channels of transmission by which social unrest can weaken a sovereign's credit profile. The first channel is through economic strength. Social unrest, whether it's protests over higher prices or political protests, leads to uncertainty, and depending on how prolonged that is, can weigh on economic growth. More importantly, it can also undermine or deter investment, in, in particular foreign investment. Second, social unrest can weaken a sovereign's fiscal strength. This is because unrest can lead to spending pressure, for instance, in cases where protests are in response to rising prices or because of increased demand for pension spending or other social spending. We can also see a weakening in fiscal strength because of the impact of a slowdown on growth, that, the impact that has on government revenue collection. And, and third, social unrest can contribute to higher event risk. This can be in the form of higher political risk or also higher liquidity risk because borrowing costs increase or because of an increase in external vulnerability risk in the case of capital outflows that lead to pressure on the exchange rate or on international reserves. Now, depending on the severity and the duration of the unrest, it can have direct rating implications. We looked at the IMF's reported social unrest index to identify episodes of social unrest or social unrest events in the past, and we found that on average, a sovereign's credit rating deteriorated by about 0.7 notches around the time of unrest over the past 20 years. Now, the magnitude of this credit deterioration is related to the severity and the duration of the unrest. And as you and Elisa mentioned already, 
even before social unrest occurs, there tends to be a weakening trend in terms of credit quality. And can you give us some examples of past episodes of unrest and how it impacted credit conditions and the sovereign ratings of those countries? Sure. So if you look at social unrest events in emerging markets, for instance, you'll see that they tend to be correlated with heightened political risk. Now, in terms of rating impact from social unrest events, I think the events of the Arab Spring and the, the pro-democracy protests in Tunisia and Egypt are probably the, the best examples of the link between unrest and credit ratings. To take Egypt, for instance, we had the rating at BA1 at the time of the protests in 2011. We took our first rating action at the time of the arrest in early 2011. And by the end of the year, we had moved the rating down to B2 and remained on further review for downgrade. So over the course of one year, the rating moved down by four notches, which is quite significant. In Tunisia, we saw a similar magnitude in terms of rating changes, but over a longer period of time. So like in the case of Egypt in Tunisia, we took our first rating action at the time of the Jasmine Revolution in 2010. At that time, we know the impact of the unexpected regime change and the political crisis as being a key driver of the, the rating action. But you saw a more precipitous decline in the rating beginning really in 2013, so, so three years after the unrest started. And this was, again, driven by political instability and political polarization. And so in 2013, we wound up taking three rating actions, moving, down, moving the rating down from BWH3 at the start of the year to BA3 by the end of the year. So very real impacts on sovereign credit conditions and ratings in these examples. And finally, what will you be watching for from governments that are confronted with social unrest? Social unrest doesn't always have negative credit implications. When we've looked at the relationship between credit quality and social unrest, we've identified a few factors that can mitigate the, the credit impact of social pressure or social unrest. The first one is a government's crisis response capacity. And this is very much related to institutions and the strength of the quality of institutions in a, in, a, in a country. Countries with stronger institutions are more likely to respond to signs of social unrest or signs of pressure or changing social demands in ways that has, have less negative credit implications. Another important mitigant is fiscal space and the room for governments to respond to social demands without seeing a deterioration in fiscal metrics to the extent that it would lead to downward credit pressure. And lastly, we find that uh, higher income countries or Lower-income countries that have a high level of remittances, for instance, these can act as buffers, both high-income level and remittances, uh, to dampen the effect of social unrest on, on economic strength, for instance, or on, on fiscal strength. So not necessarily all gloom. Thank you both for the very insightful conversation today, and thank you to our listeners. Join us next time for another episode, and in the meantime, if you have any comments or topic suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to email us at empodcast at moody's.com. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.